I just felt necessary to qualify uh, those cookies for signees because I have nine grandsons uh, here this morning, and I know that uh, the cookies will disappear unless you have to sign up. And I want to call to Dave's attention if there are a number of men who sign up to get cookies whose home address is in South America. We, we need to follow up with them, uh, get that straightened out this, this morning. Well, take your Bibles and turn to the book of, of Galatians. Now, we're going to be back in Galatians together for the next several weeks. Uh, Marshall and I together are going to continue, and if uh, he's up and gets sick, I'll, I'll preach. And if, if I'm up and I get under the weather, he's up. And if we're both under the weather, Brock's up. Okay, so that's the way that it's going to work these, these next weeks. Uh, yeah, stay, stay, everybody, stay well as best you can. Brock asked a question this morning, so I'm going to tune our minds, hopefully, into the book of Galatians by asking you a question about the book of Galatians right now. And here, here is my question. What is absent in the book of uh, Galatians, what is different, but what is absent in the book of Galatians that is typical to the rest of the Apostle Paul's, what is common to the rest of his letters uh, throughout the New, New Testament? What is absent there that is other places like at the beginning of the book of Philippians where he just thanks God for their faithfulness, their mutual participation in the gospel together and so forth? If you get the answer right, you get to take a deacon out to Ruth Chris sometime this, this week, okay? Here's some, notice the way I said that. The, okay, the, uh, the, the answer is this, that in the book of Galatians, what is absent is any commending of the Galatians. He is not praising them. He's very, very concerned, even perplexed, he says, about them. Because they are, they're in They're in trouble. They're in trouble. And so right from the beginning in the book of Galatians, he is seeking their attention to the fact that they're, they're, they're wavering. And they're wavering from the only thing that will bring salvation. And so there's a great concern that's going on. And the book is really, though the theme is the same theme as in the book of Romans, and we'll be pounding this drum as we continue in Galatians, and that it is by just, man is justified by faith alone. But they've had something take place with these people that Paul went in Asia Minor and beyond Asia Minor that he presented to them, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that faith in Christ, faith in what Christ has done on the cross, that they could not only be forgiven of their sins, but they could gain, by that faith in Christ, a righteousness that they could never gain on their own in any way or form. And we're going to see that driven home in the section that we come to this morning. So Paul, Paul is driving that home of his great concern and dealing with the fact that there is a, there is a wavering going on. There's a potential drifting away from the gospel that Paul preached to them, which was not just Paul's gospel, it was God's gospel given to Paul. That's why you remember that he begins at the very beginning of the book of Galatians, just turn back to chapter 1, and he says after he wishes them God's grace, he always does that. In fact, Galatians, he begins with the grace of God, and he ends with the grace of God. 
But in, back in chapter 1, he says in verse 6, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him. Now that's serious. A drifting, a wavering away from justification by faith alone. And it seems that no sooner had the Apostle Paul left that particular region, though he was there. No, remember, it's, it, it's addressed to churches, plural. So a number of churches that he took the gospel to, and you read in the book of Acts, and even went back and encouraged these people in the faith. But it seems that typically no sooner had he left that region and these churches than people representing the Jerusalem church or saying that they did would come into that region, the, what we call the Judaizers, and they claim to be brethren in the faith. In fact, look with me at chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 4. Notice how Paul identifies them. He says, but it was because of the false brethren. And they're false brethren because they're, chapter 1, they're conveying a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. And the gospel that they're bringing to the Galatians is a gospel of, yes, it's faith, you've got to believe in God, but you also have to keep the ceremonies of the Old Testament. You have to keep the law, and they insisted upon, likewise, upon being circumcised. And Paul's saying, you move away from the purity of the gospel, you're in real danger concerning the reality of your own, the hope of your own soul. So a couple of weeks ago, as Marshall brought us into chapter 3, verse 6 and following. The apostle is driving home this justification by faith through exhibit A, Abraham. And it's important to see Abraham because Abraham is pre-law. Abraham comes on the scene early in the book of Genesis and believed what God had revealed to him and responded in, in faith, believed, and God imputed to him righteousness. And while well, we re- read that in verse 6 through verse 9, notice the emphasis here of faith, believing. So Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. There he quotes right back from Genesis 15. Therefore be sure that it is of those who are of the faith, who are sons of Abraham. Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles. Here it is again, by faith, right? Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Now, we're going to come to verse 10, down through verse 14 this morning, and he's continuing the same argument, but from a completely different angle. And here it is. Having shown what faith does, can do, in verses 6 through verse 9, now the apostle flips this over, and he drives home what works of the law, what works can never do what the law can never accomplish. He's driving home in verse 10 through verse 14, although we're going to get this incredibly wonderful expression of the gospel in verse 13. But the focus of those other verses down through verse 14 is the futility of gaining acceptable righteousness before God any other way than by faith, than by faith. Something else that I want you to notice before we dive into these verses, I want you to notice in verse 10, 11, 12, 13, 
that you see a statement made. If you've got a Bible like mine, oftentimes it shows you that it's kind of different font and it shows you it's an Old Testament quote. Do you see that? Well, you'll notice in verse 10 he makes a statement, he presents his initial argument, and then he goes, as it is written. Down in verse 11, he makes another statement, argument, and then he says, he quotes the Old Testament in Habakkuk. Verse 12, he does the same thing, quotes the Scriptures again. Verse 13, he makes a statement, and he quotes the Scriptures again. Is that a good example for a believer? Why? Because if we're people of the book, we do a whole lot of what? Quoting the Scriptures. Quoting the Scriptures. Can you say amen to that? That will be very, very typical of our lives that we're saying oftentimes interaction with people. Yeah, but the Bible says, God says, his word says. And that's what Paul's doing concerning flipping this thing around. Now, why is it so important that Paul develops this primarily with reference to a, the, the works of the law? Why is he driving home the reality of the futility of the law as a means of righteousness? Well, what's Paul's background? His whole life was about the, everybody answer, his whole life was about the, about the law. And who are many of these people of the Galatians? It was Gentiles also, but the other group was many of the same background as the Apostle Paul. So to those of Jewish heritage, the law is everything. And it is good, but Paul's saying it is never possible to be the way in order to gain righteousness before a holy God. In fact, I want you to take your, your Bible, if you would, and turn with me to Romans, Romans chapter 10, if you would, to see that emphasis. And it's, it's a temptation, and Marshall, I'm sure you got the same thing. It's a temptation to just keep bouncing back from Galatians to Romans, or Romans to Galatians, Galatians to Romans. In fact, the whole chapter 4 is all about Abraham. But we're at chapter 10 right now, Romans chapter 10. You say, when is he going to get to the text in Galatians? Well, just hang on. I haven't preached for a while. Okay? But really, I just want you to see the emphasis here with reference to who he's talking about and and about Paul's own background. Chapter 10, verse 1. If you're looking at verse 1, say amen. Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for, for them is for their salvation. For I test about them. Now, who's the them? He's talking about Israel. He's talking about his people. I test about them. I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Verse three: For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And then we get to verse 4, and you're tempted to underline it, aren't you? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. I'm not saying law doesn't matter. He's saying Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Back to the issue of faith alone. Now back to Galatians chapter 3. As we tackle verse 10 through verse 14 this morning. And you'll notice in the bulletin, if you'd like, there's a space to to put in some of the blanks as we just look at what we have in these verses really is a four-fold problem of justification by human effort itself. Or by works, we say in in, in general, or by works of the law, as he's stating in the text talking about the same thing, works in general, works of the law. 
the fourfold problem of justification by works of the law. And the first thing that he conveys to us in verse 10 as a problem, if you're going to try to gain God's righteousness by works of the law, is that you are under a curse. You are under a curse. Look at verse 10. Now, the little Greek term gar is connecting verse 10 to what he's already said in 6 through 9, but now he's saying, okay, here's the other category. Ready? Here's the other category, justification by law, by works. Verse 10 follows, I read it. But as many as are of the works, of the works of the law, are under a, everybody say it, under what? Under a curse. There you are. Either by divine providence or human effort. You know that saying that we have around here from time to time? There are two choices on the shelf, and they're right here. There's a fork in the road. The apostle's saying it's either like Abraham by faith, or here's the other option. And if you're going the other option, the reality is that you are under divine curse. All outside of justification by faith are in this other category under this reality of divine condemnation. And we want to understand the idea of the word curse, although we have an example of that in a strong form in chapter 1, right? Because in chapter 1, when he says, if somebody preaches another gospel, which is no other gospel at all, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Let him be cast into eternal perdition. And we have a different word that is used here other than anathema, but it's the same idea under divine, based upon a judgment under divine condemnation. And I don't know of anyone who defines the reality of the curse better than the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Matthew chapter 25, on that chapter of, of Christ's return and this, this judgment of the nations and of individuals, there's the separation of the saved and the lost in terms of, 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 of the goats and sheep. And when he's talking about the goats, he's talking about the lost. When he's talking about the saved, he's talking about the sheep. And he makes this statement about separating the goats. And he says, then he will also say to those on his left, goats on his left, sheep on his right, Depart from me, there's our word again, accursed ones, into the, here's the expression of the curse, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. We would have to say together, couldn't we? It doesn't get worse than that, amen? That's the curse that he's talking about here in verse 10 that the apostle is conveying to us. Whether it be Jew or whether it be Gentile is applicable with reference to those who are seeking this righteousness by, by human effort. And really, it's already the reality of being under the curse for the Gentiles. He didn't have to have the particular Mosaic law because the Bible already tells us, and we could go back to Romans again, we won't turn there, but the Bible already tells us that when God takes a survey of the human race, he says there is none that are righteous, no, not one. Why? Because all have, what, sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we say, well, how does that happen? We get over into chapter 5. Whereas by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men as a result of this. 
So the apostle has already made it clear in the book of Romans, and he certainly preached that to the Galatians as a whole when he went and preached Christ to them, that man under human effort alone is lacking righteousness and under the curse, under the curse. Jews likewise with reference to the law, and that's why he's going to, he's going to back that up with a quote from the Old Testament. So look at the text again going to go righteousness by human effort, by law, by works. But as many are under the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, and now he quotes Deuteronomy 27, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now just think about that. He just, he's, all things has got to be fulfilled And he pulls that out of Deuteronomy 27, where God is uh, rehearsing again and renewing and ratifying a covenant that he made with the nation of Israel. And that covenant was not the basis of how how to get them to heaven. The covenant was the basis of marking them out as a unique people, to be light unto the nations by the law that he gave them and the, the relationship that they would have with him. And so in the, in the law, in terms of uh, Gerizim and Ebal, remember one was reciting the blessings and the other group who separated tribes were reciting the cursings. And he said, in effect, you know it. He said, if you obey me, I will bless you. I'm sorry, you have to be the cursing side here, okay? And if you disobey me, I will, I will curse you. And he takes the very last statement of the cursings from Deuteronomy chapter 27 and he plants it here And he makes sure everyone is completely covered anyway with reference to the law and says, cursed is everyone who does not abide in all things relating to the law. So what do we have here? We have an issue of if you're going to get to heaven by works, what kind of life do you have to live? A perfect life. God can't give any other standard other than a perfect one. He's a holy God. So he demands perfection. Demands perfection. Makes us think, doesn't it? Makes us think about that statement in the book of James. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet offends in one point, he's become guilty of, finish it, all of it. Guilty of all of it. What's the standard? It's got to be perfection. There's only one that has met that standard. Who is it? The Lord Jesus Christ, which qualifies him to pay the price for our very sin and to gain a righteousness in him and him alone. We have a, uh, one of our grandson. i, I got to pick on the grandsons because many of them are going to be gone Tuesday, so it's just free time for pastor. Can you say amen to that? It's okay. It's okay. Thank you very much. One of our grandsons, they'll play some basketball. And uh, in encouraging him in playing uh, basketball, Grandma offered that grandson, because she said, if you're going to play basketball, I want to see that when you get fouled, I want you to make your, want you to make your free throws. So she offered him $20 if he makes 10 free throws in a row. (laughs) Now, he's mentioned different times. He's made six, seven, eight, and I think even on one occasion, he's made nine. He wants Grandma to lower the standard. She has made it clear 
You don't meet the standard of 10. He has not yet gotten the $20. The standard, God's standard of human effort is not that I'll just have to live better than you or you better than me, but we have to live a sinless life. And if we fail to live that, that may be you this morning. You're thinking through your works by being a good neighbor, a good person, a good husband, a good wife, a good teen, whatever else. You may think that God's going to take that into account. And I want to tell you this this morning. Unless your faith is in Christ alone right now, present tense, right now, you are under God's curse. That should get your attention to think, what do I got to do about, about that? And that is the whole theme of the book of Galatians, right back as we read verses 6 through 9. Trust Christ today. Put your faith in Christ and Christ alone today, the only one that can fully pay for the sin of your life and that you would be forgiven and have the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you convinced? Without justification by faith, you are, according to verse 10. Could you say you're convinced of that? Can you say amen? You are under the curse. Thank God for God solving that problem. Then secondly, he gives another reason with reference to the justification of works by the law, and that's down in verse 11. In verse 11, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. Here we got a quote again. And it sounds like something we've quoted already in previous verses, but it's from a different book of the Bible. The righteous or the just man, here it is again, shall live by faith. In verse 11, he's saying, notice, that no one, this little negative indefinite pronoun, conveys the fact that there are no exceptions. Get that? No exceptions. Now that no one, no exceptions are presently justified by the law before God, and that he says it's evident, for the Bible says Here it is again, the just man shall live by faith. In other words, it has never, righteousness through human effort has never been God's way. And it's important to nail that down because oftentimes in our thinking or with people that do not know like the book of Galatians, they'll suggest people were saved one way in the old covenant and another way in the new covenant. And everyone here this morning has to leave nailing it down and saying, no, wait a minute, the Bible is clear, isn't it? It has always been by faith. Now, the old covenant saints lived in light of the coming promise, but it was trusting God. New Testament saints, with reference to what we know, fulfilled in what God has done. But it's still back to the issue of faith. So in Deuteronomy, all under the curse, Verse 11, Habakkuk, he's conveying to us, it's the same as with Abraham. But what is significant here is Abraham being justified by faith is before the law. Habakkuk, your favorite book of the Old Testament, right? Habakkuk is centuries after the law. So what is he doing? He's saying before and after. Still, the proof is the Scripture says it's always been by trusting God. It's always been by faith. We get to the New Testament and see that with reference to the person of God. And there's so many other places, like in the book of Galatians, perhaps one of the best known for all of us is a verse like this. We all know this by heart, don't we? And here it is again. But we all know this by heart, don't we? 
I'll say it one more time. We all know this one by heart, uh, don't we? For by grace, by grace we have been saved through what? There it is. And that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. And you want to just keep repeating, don't you? Because it says, not by works lest any person should boast or make claims to those works. So you have an assignment this week. The assignment is, find where in the Bible that it says, the just shall live by law. Okay, and report back to me, although you will not be able to find it because it doesn't say that anywhere in the Word of God. Always been by, always been by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, we call it that great hall of fame of the faithful, don't we? But what do we keep reading in Hebrews 11? By faith, this person. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. And it begins with the reality. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. You are under a curse, he says in verse 10, problem of trying to gain righteousness through the law, through the Mosaic law, through in general uh, uh, man's self-imposed works law. Verse 11, he drives that home again with saying, it's never been God's way. Other than by faith, no one is justified by law. No one, no exceptions. And then one other way he's driving that home now in verse 12. Notice verse 12. I'm going to read it and then what summarized statement just for taking notes this morning. He says, however, the law is not faith. It's not a faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by faith. And he quotes now from the book of Leviticus. Now, what is he saying in verse 12? When he says the law is not of faith, there's a little uh, a connective in here, a conjunction. It's the conjunction Allah, where it contrasts one thing over against the other. And that's what he's doing in this verse. Law is not of faith. We could read it this way. Faith is not of the law. It's either or. They are mutually exclusive. That's the point. Law excludes faith. So if you're going that route, you'll never get the other way. It's one or the other. And if you add works to faith, then you've ruined the gospel because human effort is involved in the reality of that. And a testimony of a tempting salvation by works, I don't know of a better example of either The law, which is about man, it's about self. Living by the law doesn't require faith. What does it require? It requires obedience. That's what the law is about. But an example of that that is so powerful is found in the book of Luke. Would you turn there? Luke chapter 18. Because Jesus is going to tell a parable, a story, about justification, about righteousness. So turn with me to Luke chapter 18 and verse 10 and following. Now, you remember this? He talks about two men. Luke 18, 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Notice that, to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pray tithes of all that I get. 
What is the law about? About you. It's about I, 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 what I've done. But, verse 13, the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's a faithful saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What did Paul say? Among whom I am chief or foremost of all. What is this man saying? God, I have nothing to offer you. The Pharisee is living under law. He gives you the grocery list of his personal human righteousness. This this other man realizes there's nothing in him that's going to bring about that desired relationship with God. So he says, God, you're going to have to do, you're going to have to make propitiation. You're going to have to do something on behalf of for me that I can't do for myself. Now notice verse 14. I don't want to miss that. Look at verse 14. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than... He went what? Justified. Why? He was looking for grace here. God, you do something. I want to suggest this morning God has done something in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what he's calling for. You're going to have to do it because I know I can't in and of myself have offer anything that's going to work to accomplish a righteousness in and of my Self. Back to Galatians. The law excludes faith. One is the opposite of the other. They're like oil and water. You can't mix them and have a gospel that saves. Gramacki says it this way. This person, back to chapter 3, verse 12. This person, he who practices them shall live by them. He pulls this out of Leviticus 18. Just emphasize the fact if you're going to go that way, you've got to go all the way, if I can say it this way. Gramacchi, in his excellent commentary on the book of Galatians concerning verse 12, he says this, this person must spend his life doing and obeying. Doing and obeying. Now what can happen is we can get that far and we can say, well then, it seems like then the law is bad. And Paul would argue with that and say, no, the law is not bad. The law is good. That's what he says in Romans. And why is the law good? Not that it saves me, but it helps me realize that I need to be saved, right? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would have not come to know sin except through the law. For I would have not known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So Paul says, oh no, I love the law. It was my life. If anyone ever tried to gain a righteousness in the law, it was him. And then he died to it and became alive to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying it's good, it's good, it's good in that it drives you and it gets you to Christ. And he's going to emphasize that in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Turn there with me. 3.23. But before faith, Galatians 3.23, before faith, we are kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our 
tutor. It's a beautiful word. It's like a custodian. It was somebody that was used to guide another person to synagogue or, or, or to school or whatever else, one to take care of somebody else. And he says that the law was that to me because it was my tutor. It was my guide to Christ so that we might be justified again. End of verse 24, by faith. Verse 25 But now that faith has come, we are no longer under that tutor or that guardian, but have come to being delivered from that in the sense of a form of righteousness by having come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's my illustration for that of this morning, if I may. You have one of those? Anybody? Raise your hand. You have one of those things? Yeah. They're pretty handy. I think this thing's got like uh, 18 to 20 different things on it that you can do something uh, with it. Um, Screwdriver or grab hold something or whatever else. You know what I'm talking about. If you have one of these multi-tools, multi-purpose. I have a son-in-law that takes people onto the camping, onto the Appalachian Trail on a regular uh, uh, regular time, and I know he's got one of those, and I know he has those because for Christmas he gave me one of those particular tools. And while I can do all these wonderful different things that are, that the tool is made for, I don't know, you're going to say I'm being silly, I'm not trying to be silly, I don't know anybody that's ever tried to mow their lawn with one of those, do you? You say that's absurdity, right? I don't know anybody that's tried to paint their house with one of those, do you? You say that's absurd. Yep. You see, here's the idea. It has all those other good purposes, but it wasn't designed to do certain other things. And the law has one of all of these wonderful, excellent purposes. The law conveys to us God's standard of what is right and just and good. Amen? The law, the law in terms of general, the law is something that restrains evil in our world. That's a good thing. And Paul is saying the best thing about the law is that it guides us, it brings us, to the reality of our need for righteousness that comes alone by faith. So the law doesn't do what it was never designed to do, and it was never designed to get us to heaven. Now, all right, is it clear? There's one way, justified by faith alone. Righteousness to your account in the account books of heaven comes by faith and faith alone, not by works and not by the law. Is it clear among all of us this morning? Can you say amen? From the scriptures. So then what's, what's the next aspect of this problem? It leads us to this. The problem of justification by works of the law is this, number four. And here's where we really want to get to. And I want to come back to next week. And that is, because you can't get there by works, you need a redeemer. <laughs> you need a redeemer. Verse 14 gets us there. Verse 14. And verse 14 is the gospel. Did you hear me? This is the gospel. Verse 14 is the explanation of the gospel. Verse 14 is the explanation of salvation. How is it that we are saved by Christ and saved by faith alone? We'll let it explain itself, Pastor. Let's read it. Verse 13. Christ, everything that's true about the doctrine of redemption is fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse, finish it for me, 
for us on our behalf. And I want to ask you, just to be sure that I wouldn't miss it this morning, I want to ask you, look at that verse again, and can you put the word me in there for yourself? Can you do that this morning? Can you read this verse and say, Christ redeemed me from the curse of the law, having become a curse for me? Can you say that? Oh, I trust that you can. But that is, that, that is the essence of the good news right there. Redemption explains salvation in terms of what Jesus Christ has done in the work of the cross. Listen carefully. Christ's saving work on the cross is presented to us and pictured for us in the imagery of redemption. And the imagery of redemption is the marketplace and the reality of slavery. That's the imagery. Let me say it another way. The imagery with reference to our salvation presented to us in redemption presents to us a price that is paid that's at the heart of this, a cost, a price that is paid. We sang even the word ransom this morning. A price that is paid. Secondly, a rescue that is accomplished in redemption. And third, a price paid and a rescue that is accomplished leads to a freedom that is experienced. Turn over with me to Galatians chapter 5, and that is the heart of this glorious concept of redemption that far goes beyond the work of the cross in terms of the overall presentation of redemption in the Scriptures as a whole. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to what? What are you called to, does he say to the Galatians? You're called to what? Freedom. How is that? You can be, go under the curse to freedom. From the penalty of your sin in Christ, listen carefully, and from the bondage to sin in your life. From an old master, sin, to a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ, expressed in this incredible, glorious term of redemption. That's why we're going to close this morning. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Now here's the word. Let's look at the word. How can we? It's blank. Oh, oh yes, here's how we were redeemed. But, nope. Okay, I don't have it, so I'm just going to tell you. The noun word of redeemed in verse 13 is the word agora. And when we hear that word agora, the idea of that is a word with reference as a Greek term, noun form, referred to the marketplace. But in the verb form, it is the word agorazo. And agorazo is the idea of a payment of a price in the marketplace. Well, now when I'm talking about the marketplace, it's like I'm talking about in our, in our vernacular, it's like a, an outdoor shopping mall, okay? First century, the marketplace. And one of the things that was often taking place in the marketplace was that someone would be able to purchase a slave. And the word that he uses here in the verb form is the word agarazzo, which means 
emphasizes a price that is paid that was commonly used in the marketplace to purchase a slave. But that's not even the word that he uses. What he does is he adds a prefix to it, and it's the word ex agorazo. And the emphasis of ex agorazo is this. It is to buy out of the marketplace by a payment that is made from slavery to freedom. And the emphasis is removal. Out of, to remove. Paul is emphasizing the fact that Christ has bought us and removed us out of anything to do with reference to the condemning nature of our sin and the bondage to our sin that is found without the work of Christ in our lives. How did he do that? Became a sin for us. What does he do again? Right from the book of Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, Jesus was not put on the cross because he was already under a curse. That would be common of a lawbreaker. He's cursed because he broke the law, and then he'd be put on a stake or a cross. That was not the case with Jesus. Jesus was put on the cross, and he became a curse for others. Not hung there because he sinned. Rather, he judicially became accursed by taking the penalty of those already under the curse. That's you and I. And so in verse 14, he gives us two benefits of that, this incredible truth. Verse 14, the first benefit is this, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham come to the Gentiles. That in Christ now we become, back to the previous verses, sons of Abraham. Second benefit he mentions in verse 14, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul so emphasizes this gift of the Spirit because how in the world do we live this new life of faith? We need power. Where do we gain power? Through the work of the Spirit. By his enabling power in the believer's life. Because we're not only saved by faith, beloved, we live by faith now in the Word of God and in the grace of God to help us live a life pleasing to God in all respects. So I want to ask you, can you put your, put your name in there? And then I want to take us to a quote by Dr. MacArthur. Men are redeemed. Why does God redeem sinners like us? Men are redeemed in order to exhibit God's majestic being before all creation. Isn't that good? Let me read that again. just seems like that guy knows how to preach and knows the word, doesn't it? Men are redeemed in order to exhibit God's majestic being before all creation. Were you here first hour? That is synonymous, another way of saying, living all to the glory of God. And to do so, reflect his majestic being in the life of those he's redeemed. His supreme purpose is to demonstrate his glorious grace against the backdrop of man's sinfulness, lostness, and hopelessness. One other place I'd like you to turn right now in closing. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, when a pastor says in closing, do you know what that means? That means absolutely nothing, okay? Turn to 1 Corinthians 6. 
but I mean it. I'm going to stay right here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Oh, what great news to these Corinthians who are in Christ. He said this, verse 11. He says, such were some of you. He is a grocery list of the sins of the world. Verse 11, but such were, past tense, were some of you. Let me just stop here for a moment. Once an alcoholic, always alcoholic, nonsense. Once a person who is given to same-sex attraction, always because that you were born that way, nonsense. Nonsense. Christ saves and delivers from sin. Would you say amen to that? He says, such were some of you. Look at the list in verse 9. I'm not going to read it. Some of you were there. Past tense, but you were washed. Look at verse 11. You were sanctified. You were justified, declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the spirit of our God. So what does he say over in verse 18? Flee immorality and every other sin that a man commits outside of the body. But the immoral man sins even against his own body. But where I want to land is verse 20. So what do we do? We remember, for you were bought with a price. There's redemption. You were bought. So what should we do? Glorify God in our bodies. Can you say amen to that? That is his goal for us, who are able to say, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Lord, our Lord and our God, you've declared, your son declared, I am the way. There's one way. There's one way. It's by faith. It's always been that. And the object of that faith is you and what you've done in your son. And what an incredible thought to be able to comprehend something of the fact that when God, you, the Father, see us now in the Son, you see us as righteous as your own Son. Thank you for that standing that we have based upon saving faith. We acknowledge this morning there's a kind of faith that's simply intellectual assent. That's not going to get it. The kind of faith that saves is a faith that's all in based upon all that he's done in Christ, you've done. And I ask that that would be the, the nature of the faith, everyone that's here this morning. If not, draw them to yourself as you convict them of their sin and their need for a Savior to be free of that curse that man is under without faith. So we thank you for that and the price that was paid, the price that was paid precious blood as of a lamb. We thank you. And may it, may it move us then to glorify God, having been bought with that price, to glorify you in all things. Speak highly of our God that we serve. And I pray again these things in the name of, 
your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of his people said, Amen. Amen.